Acts chapter 5 this morning. Acts chapter 5, and if you're using the Bibles in the benches, we found on page 1698. And, uh, it's printed in the bulletin there to begin at verse uh, 14. Let's begin at verse 12, just to remember some of where we left off last time. As we continue to work our way through the second volume of Luke's uh, writing here really could think of it as the second half of his gospel, the second volume of his gospel. Acts chapter 5, beginning at verse 12, this is God's Word. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade, and no one else dared to join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all of his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. And at daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and they began to teach the people. And when the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and they sent to the jail for the apostles. But on the arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So when they went back and reported, well, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. And someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. And at that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles, but they did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. So having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And Peter and the other apostles replied, well, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. And then he addressed them. He said, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to kill him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed. Rallied to him, excuse me. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. 
He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and they had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. So far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, it seems pretty obvious by now that in the book of Acts we're going back and forth between very wonderful triumph of the early church and then its very violent and oppressive persecution. There are very good times in the early book, uh, or the early part of the book of Acts, and there are very bad times, in a sense, when the church is facing persecution. The antithesis between godliness and righteousness and the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ and Christians who are gripped by the gospel, living out praise and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, that joy and that glorious uh, dynamic which the Spirit is working in the life of the early church, which is still alive at work in us today and each of us as individual members of the body of Christ, that joy and that glory and that goodness is always under attack by those who are offended at the idea of God and of of submitting to His will and of confessing that they are sinful and are in need of a Savior. It's the age-old war. It's the antithesis between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. It's the war that started in the Garden of Eden when man fell into sin and plunged himself and all of his descendants into sins and miseries. And ever since, nothing has ever been pure and perfect. There is always this battle going on. And that's exactly what's happening in the early book of Acts. I mean, we have to... First of all, see in the context here that the gospel is going forward very powerfully. The church is growing and being established, and that's a good thing. I mean, we've seen that the apostolic authority in the church is established, and nothing can overtake it. You remember in Acts 1.13, the apostles, the government of the church, is in place. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James and Simon and Judas, and then they drew lots to replace the other Judas who had apostatized, he was reprobate, the lot fell to Matthias. The government of the church is established, so that's a good thing. There is the advancement of the kingdom of Christ on the earth. The church members, even when there was only about 120 of them, were displaying in their lives the fruit of gratitude. Primarily, they were devoted to prayer, Acts 1.14, with one mind. They were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. 
There was godliness in the life of the early church. The sanctification was evident. We see that the church was gathering together regularly for worship. We saw in Acts 2.42, continually they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And we saw what that meant. That's talking primarily about their public worship as God's people, devoting themselves to the preaching of the word. And then for, remember, fellowship meant the offerings, the partnership of God's people together for the benevolent needs of those who had them and for the work of the advancement of the kingdom. They were breaking bread, meaning they were celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And they were praying or participating in the prayers, as we saw, meaning they were not only praying as a congregation uh, together through, say, the mouth of one of the apostles, like the congregational prayers that we have today through the minister, but they were also singing the songs of praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the church was doing. It was vibrant. It was established. The authority was in place. They were praying, not only in public worship, but on the side. They were devoted to public worship together. They were even... This had to do with fellowship too, taking their meals together. They were spending time with each other, investing in each other's lives, and not only each other, but obviously in the lives of their neighbors, to bear witness of their faith and to encourage each other in the life of Christian discipleship. There was great advance, and we've also seen that the membership list of the church didn't stay at 120, but the apostles were preaching the gospel and accompanying that preaching were the miraculous works of healing, and these things were combining for the Spirit using them basically to bring people into the church. The membership list was expanding through the powerful missionary activity of the church. I mean, this was the process, wasn't it? The apostles would come, and as they did with the, uh, the crippled man who was at the temple, they would come to people who were absolutely helpless and miserable and pathetic, and they would pour forth the power and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ visibly in the lives of these sick ones, and they would heal them, And the people would see this, and then accompanying that healing, it wouldn't just be a healing for show, but they would preach the law and the gospel. They would say, listen, the kind of sickness that you're seeing here is a a representation of our sinful sickness and our our desperate need as humanity for the forgiveness of our sins and the restoration by the grace of God. And you, when you're hearing this, many of these people were cut to the heart and they cried out to the apostles, well, how then can we be right with God? How may we be saved? And then the glorious gospel of Christ was preached to these people. And the people who were convicted by the Spirit received with with joyful hearts the pronouncement that Christ had lived and died for them, that His perfect obedience would be credited to them, that His blood was shed to take away all their guilt, and all of these healings which you are seeing are only a foretaste of the great glorification day which is coming. And when people heard this message, it was accompanied by the Spirit at work in their hearts, and thousands of people started joining the church. This is what's happening. This is all very wonderful and positive. The Lord is adding, as we saw in Acts 2, after Peter preaches, thousands of people to the membership list of the church. And let's remember that this church is an organized group. This is not some nebulous group of people that sort of gather around when Peter is preaching or the other apostles are preaching and they kind of like the message and so they come back again. It's not just that. It's that they are joining an official church that has government. It is the apostles. You remember that Uh, this group began to take shape and was identified as a particular group. In Acts 2.41, those who had received the word were baptized, and on that day there were added about 3,000 souls. You see, they numbered them. They counted them because they were joining an official community. The Lord was adding, verse 47 of Acts 2, to their number, their number, day by day, those who were being saved. And as time went on, as we saw, 
this definable group that was counted and numbered, it was distinguished from everybody else. Acts 4.23, when Peter and John had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. In Acts 5.13, which we read this morning, none of the rest of the people dared to associate with them. Who is them? It's all the members of the church. It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the visible church right there that people could see. And they could see that you were either a member of that church or you weren't. And when you received the message of the apostles and the Spirit had worked in you, then you naturally responded to join the fellowship of the believers officially. People saw them as a group. There were people, if you look again in verse 13 of chapter 5, no one else dared to join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. You see, there were those who were perhaps even very much influenced by the message of the apostles. They were very amazed at the life and witness of those who were associating with the church, but they dared not join them. And we saw various reasons for that last time, because not only is the church gracious and compassionate and preaching good news, but of course there are obligations and responsibilities, and you have accountability when you join the church, and the church is dogmatic, the church says that we will believe the Word of God and we will conform to it no matter what uh, comes along. And if you want to be part of that community, you're only going to do that if you see that your whole life has been redeemed uh, by Christ and by the mercy of God the Father. So that's certainly happening. There are many, many people coming into the church and that's where we're left off. This is a positive thing that's going on. This is good that the Spirit is at work in expanding the church and establishing it. This leads us in uh, to the story today. Look at verse 15. I mean, so many, 14, so many more men and women believed in the Lord and are added to their number and 15. As a result, people are bringing the sick into the streets and even laying them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall upon them. I mean, the power of Christ working through the apostles to demonstrate the glory of Christ and to authenticate the law and the gospel which uh, he was preaching was getting... Uh, the word was going out. Notice crowds, verse 16, gathered from the towns also around Jer Jerusalem. So people are coming from out of town to bring their sick and those tormented by evil spirits. Because these people have never seen anything like this before. I mean, it's just like when Jesus was walking around. He was performing the kinds of healings that magicians had tried, that false prophets had tried for years and years, but nobody could pull it off. And here was Jesus actually doing it. And now the apostles, or Jesus Christ through his apostles, continues to do it. Now, it's interesting to see that how people are treating Peter as one of those. Peter's shadow might fall on me if he passes by and I might be healed. The people that are coming, not just from within Jerusalem, but from the towns around, are very familiar uh, with some of their uh, influence, pagan influences on their own religious outlook. Uh, they had a very superstitious idea of what constituted healing or how to harness the power of the gods or of, if they believed in one god, God to heal them. So they're hearing about powerful healings and they think this is just another one of these prophets in the town who's uh, promising to do something and maybe if Peter walks by, his shadow will heal them. Uh, but you see, even these people who are coming with all of their superstition and false religion, the Lord is still showing mercy to them. He's healing these people. And He's along with that, preaching the law and the gospel, hopefully to bring them to conviction, right? Or not hopefully, but certainly for those who are elect in the midst who come to the contact with Peter, he is bringing them to faith, to call them to repent from their false gods and to flee to Christ, flee from their superstitions and flee to the truth. 
This is all wonderful and that's what's going on. But of course, in this story too, we see the, the antithesis. I mean, you'd think, and Christians today are tempted to think, well, look, if the church was performing miraculous signs of healing and delivering people very powerfully from all kinds of sickness and struggles and discouragement, then you know what? The church would grow just like it did then. But we see over and over in Acts that there are plenty of people who right in front of their face are experiencing things that they've never seen before. The obvious power of God and His grace and compassion over a lost humanity breaking out right in their midst and they still reject the message. And it wouldn't be any different today. It wouldn't be any different today. As we've said, people don't need more proof that God is true. The reason why people don't respond to the true God and don't respond to the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ when it's proclaimed is because their hearts are hard and they're part of the fallen human race. And that's true of the many people who are still hearing the apostles preach and teach and rejecting Him. And today, again, again, it is the religious authorities and the governmental authorities, it's the Sanhedrin, it's the high priest, it's the one who of all people, the experts in the Scriptures, especially the high priest, when the Messiah comes, they should be able to identify Him and embrace Him and worship Him, and they do not. And it's gotten to the point, as you see at verse 33 of chapter 5, that they were furious and they wanted to put the apostles to death. This was not like before, a couple of chapters earlier, when they were arrested for causing the uprising and healing this cripple and drawing people to maybe question uh, some of their authority. But this kind of preaching and teaching continued and it got to a point of, of absolute urgency now. We have heard enough and we are angry and we want to put you to death. Now keep in mind, according to the law, not only the law of God which they supposedly have held, but the law of the land which they were oppressed into uh, submitting themselves by the Romans, there is no basis for them to put these men to death. But these religious authorities, these governmental uh, rulers also serving that purpose, they decide that it doesn't matter what the law says. They're outraged that this is happening on their watch. And it's very important to understand why exactly they want them put to death. Well, the first reason is explained to us very clearly by Luke. It is that they are jealous. They are filled with jealousy. Verse 17, the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. What, what does that mean? What does it mean that they're jealous of the apostles? Well, they're jealous, first of all, that they don't have the power themselves to do this. I mean, after all, they're supposed to be the ones that everybody looks to in the society of the Jews to find out any questions about what is right and what's wrong, how to interpret the Scripture, how to worship God, how to live your life in all kinds of detail. And you are going to tell me that God is going to use some dirty fishermen who are untrained, never came to any of our schools, and spent all of their lives from their youth memorizing the Torah like we have, what line do they come from? What priestly line do these apostles come from that now all of a sudden they can say that they have the authority of, of the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and proclaim the truth in the name of Christ and, and perform these miraculous healings? 
That's not fair. So they are offended personally. They're jealous. They're jealous that there is also this outbreak of response to the religious leadership of the apostles. This enthusiastic response of this vibrant group of people that is now devoting themselves to prayer and still yet participating in the worship in the temple to give honor and praise to God and being generous to each other in community. You see, why does that make them jealous and offensive? Because, of course, they're not doing the same thing. People are always skeptical of their motivations. You know, they know that the high priest and his family, so much of nepotism going on all the time. All that's going on is corruption in the temple. As we talked about last time, it's kind of like a mafia scene. They're oppressing their people. The Sanhedrin is always complaining about the Roman armies coming in and, and the taxation systems that are imposed upon Israel. But look, and then how do they turn around? They turn around and they oppress their own. And so they don't have any kind of response to their leadership in the positive way, like the apostles are getting to theirs. And so they're upset and they're jealous. They don't have the kind of devotion. These untrained fishermen go back in the water. This is not your business around the temple and theology and, and this gospel. Their pride is severely wounded and they want them dead. They want them dead. They don't care that this is obviously true, what they're saying, that it's obviously demonstrated to be true by the healings that are performed. It's the same reason they put Jesus Christ to death. You can see that whole part of history being relived through the lives of the apostles. It's like these men are trying to kill Jesus all over again as Jesus is working through them. There's another reason that we have why they are upset. You are trying, they say, you are trying to make us guilty of this man's blood. That's in verse 28. We gave you strict orders, 28, not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. You know, you keep, you keep mentioning this in your sermons, apostles. You keep saying that, you know, you put him to death on the cross, but he's risen up and is the Lord of life. That, you know, God sent him into the world as the true prophet. And you killed him. You're calling us murderers. And if the people begin to be persuaded that indeed we murdered a true prophet from God, then we will be held accountable. And we will lose all of our fame, all of our money, all of our power, all of our influence. We will lose all of this cushy little religious, authoritative, governmental, political system that we have worked so hard to maintain. You will thwart all of the efforts that we have been uh, working so hard on to keep the Roman government at bay, to advance the cause of Israel in the ancient Near East. You will ruin all of that with this message. They will see that we are murderers and they will put us to death. And that's why they didn't lay hands on the apostles violently when they brought them back in before the Sanhedrin because they were worried that they would be stoned. Because popular opinion... continued to be swayed in favor of the apostles. How could people deny that the healings that were going on uh, were not obvious verification uh, that things are true? This is an uprising. That's what this is. And it's got to be stopped. This is why they're upset. 
And again, the story takes a turn for the better in the sense that it would almost be inconceivable that the apostles would not be, again, seriously arrested after their first arrest and escape, seriously arrested and even put to death. Because these men were dead set, and they saw the dead set on stamping out this message, and they saw that it was a certain threat to everything that they held dear. But the story does turn, and this Gamaliel steps in as the proceedings are going on before of the Sanhedrin, and this is in verses 36 and 37. Now, his argument uh, before this supreme ruling council that's deciding what to do with the apostles is kind of interesting. He talks about two different kinds of sectarian leaders that they are familiar with whose movements had sprung up and were a threat to the power of the Sanhedrin, but eventually fell away. He says, look, in uh, verse 36, this Theodos appeared claiming to be somebody. That's an interesting little expression. We use it today, but claiming uh, to be somebody essentially means he was claiming to have some position of religious authority. He could have claimed uh, perhaps to be a prophet, or maybe he said that he himself was the Messiah. He was the Christ. Uh, could have been either one, but these things were not that uncommon that religious sectarian groups would spring up in Israel. And really the way that the Jewish leaders wanted to view Christianity or the way, as it was called at this point, they wanted to view it just as one of many other sort of sectarian religious movements that came out of Judaism that would spring up for a while but eventually die away. That's what they wanted it to be. But it wasn't happening. We don't exactly know who this uh, Theodos was. A lot of names were repeated many times in uh, the, time at, uh, the time these things were writing, so there were probably more than one uh, sectarian leaders named Theodos, so we don't know the details of this particular man. But in any case, uh, Gamaliel says, look, in his case, he had 400 men committed to him. They probably sold all of their possessions and followed him out into the wilderness, like a lot of these guys did. Uh, but once we killed him, all of his followers were dispersed, or maybe they had the Romans kill him for some reason. All of the followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. And then this other kind of guy, verse 37, Judas the Galilean, appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in the revolt. Now we know who this guy is. This guy had less to do with religion and more to do with politics. This was the guy who, when the Sanhedrin cut a deal with the Roman government to allow them to increase their taxation, of course, the Sanhedrin was going to get a little kickback. So the Sanhedrin just buckles to the oppression of the Roman government so that they can make a little bit of extra money and advance their family's wealth in the culture. That never happens in politics, right? It's exactly what happens. Judas the Galilean sees the Sanhedrin does this and he leads a revolt against the Sanhedrin. And they're not going to let that happen. They're going to stamp that out because, again, that threatens their money and their power. He leads a band of people in revolt. He, too, was killed. And almost for certain, they had the Roman armies kill this man because they're not going to... Uh, look favorably upon getting less tax money from the Jews. So this man was killed, and immediately all of his followers were scattered. So this happens for various religious reasons and various political reasons from time to time, Gam Gamaliel says. And look, just if it's one of these things, it's going to pass away. So don't worry about it. You know, the more this is how people are, too. The more you persecute them, the more they think that they really have something, and they really get riled up to the cause just humanly speaking, no matter what it is. So if you just back off, you'll let them be exposed for the folly that they are, like all these movements spring up, and they don't have any power, 
and it will die. However, he says, if it is from God what they're doing, verse 39, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And here is Gamaliel, and this is fascinating. He's hedging his bets is what he's doing. He is hedging his bets. Because here's a man who is very well respected in the Sanhedrin. He is, as we know from other places, he is a Pharisee. He's not a Sadducee. And it seems like the high priestly family is, of course, of the Sadducees. And the Sadducees at this point are taking the lead in the opposition uh, to the church. But he's a Pharisee who's very, very well respected. And he's a scholar in the law. He's an older man, revered by everyone, very wise, not just among the Sanhedrin community, but really throughout Judaism. And he is the one who is able to recognize that something, even though we don't see him coming to Jesus Christ, and I don't believe we have any indication to view him as, a, as one who is you know, thinking about coming to the truth or in the process somehow of coming to the right a belief and, and willing to repent and join the church and flee to Christ. I don't believe we have any indication of that. But what's interesting is even a hard-hearted man is able to see what is going on in the church and to recognize it and to fear them and respect what's going on to the point that he backs off and says, you know, we better be careful here. You know, we may be able to kill with the sword, but if I see the apostles healing people, speaking the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I don't think our swords and our political maneuvers to keep them quiet are really going to be able to restrain them anyway. And if in case they are on the side of God, I better watch out. We view Gamaliel in a similar way as we view maybe Pontius Pilate. Remember, here's a guy who doesn't really deliver the... He doesn't stand up, Pontius Pilate, and say about Jesus, he is not guilty and therefore I will exercise my power to let him go. He kind of hedges, doesn't he? He says, well, I've found no reason to call this man guilty. If you're going to do something to him, I, I'm not guilty of it. Of course, he didn't take the opportunity to exonerate Jesus, did he? Did he stand up to the angry mob that was going to crucify Jesus? No. He handed him over. But he wanted to make sure that he said enough to sort of cover himself, maybe if this was, if Jesus really was who he said he was. He's a coward. He's hedging his bets. It's the same thing with Gamaliel. He's a coward. He's hedging his bets. He says, hey, if it's from God, you've got to be careful. So God is using a coward, an enemy, hedging his bets, one of the others, here to deliver the apostles from death because it is not fitting, it is not right at this time for the apostles to be put to death at this time in the life of the church. They have not gone on through the course of their ministry, as we'll see through the continuation of the book of Acts, to go out and preach the gospel and then to establish the ministers of the word in local churches and then to establish the elders in those churches. They still have work to do, you see, so they may not be killed because God has ordained that the gospel will continue to go out through them and that they will still continue to demonstrate the miraculous healings to accompany their preaching. And God uses one of the others to deliver them from death. But, of course, they are still persecuted. And people pass over this. This is a great a triumph, in a sense, that they are delivered from death. But what happens in verse 40, chapter 5? His speech persuades them. They call the apostles in and they have them flogged. So his speech wins them over, but they called the apostles in still and they had them flogged. 
Now, it is just difficult for Christians, all of us who live in the 21st century, to think in this country, to think of, of this kind of, of behavior of, by a government or by a church, or by the church government in this case. They had the apostles flogged. You know what flogged is? That is either taking a whip and giving the apostles each 39 lashes with that whip or taking a rod and giving them 39 strong blows with that rod. 39 lashes with a whip. You don't even see that done to animals today. 39 blows with a rod? Can you imagine if a police officer did anything near that while he was apprehending even a violent suspect in a criminal case? They were beaten severely, people of God. Severely. The church is being established. Members are joining, numbering in the thousands. The church is growing. It is flourishing. People are going forward in thankful obedience. The church is uniting together. And at the same time, the apostles are being beaten, lashed with whips. 39 blows with a rod. This is not a happy time. And yet we have a shift again in the story because we see the response of the apostles to being lashed with this whip. What is their response? Amazing. Verse 41, they left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. And really, there's three responses here the apostles give to this kind of persecution. They have just been whipped 39 times. They're in got to be awful physical pain to say nothing of how it, it feels to be beaten in that way. The apostles leave the Sanhedrin. They are rejoicing. They have great joy, Luke says. What is this joy that they have? Well, let's not be silly about this. This joy, they're not happy. Okay? They're not happy, jumping with glee, as their bodies have been torn up by taking 39 lashes from a whip. They're not giving high fives to each other. This rejoicing is that they have the integrity of conscience through the gospel of Christ and they have real hope in the resurrection. What it means that they are joyful is that it doesn't matter what anybody does to me on this earth or how anybody else makes me feel because I am right with the only one who matters, God, the one whom I have offended, the one whom I have sinned against, Peter, the one who I denied three times after he had spent three years loving me and training me up and keeping me close to himself. Peter, the hard-hearted fisherman, I, as all of the apostles would say, and as Paul later said himself, the chief of sinners, I am right with the one, the only one who matters, because he has sent Christ for me. 
And not only that, but He is going to restore me fully and finally in only a matter of years. Only as long as He keeps me on this earth. You see, I have a clear conscience because of the gospel and I have a true and a living hope knowing that a few years down the road, no matter how long I live, no matter how miserable my life is right now, I am going to be in glory. I will be fully satisfied and restored and will be in the joy of my salvation in the presence of my God. And so I don't care what they do to me. You can whip me as many times as you want. But you can't take away my clean conscience. You can't take away my clean conscience and you can't take away the glorification which is mine. That's what joy is. By the way, that's what joy is for us whenever we're facing any kind of distress. And I think, of course, it is a reference to being persecuted. So perhaps we aren't suffering right now many uh, physical forms of persecution. Some of our brothers and sisters around the world are. Some of them are dying. Some of their children are being kidnapped. Some of them are being beaten. Some of them are being imprisoned. But they can't take away their clean conscience before the Lord. And they can't take away the glorification that will be theirs. And for you, when uh, maybe you're in school or you think of the media's approach to the Christian faith, you think of how your neighbors view you, you think about society in general, how it's against everything godly at times, when you think about uh, the workplace and how people will uh, alienate you because they don't accept you because you convict them just by your life and witness, when you think about maybe injustice in political systems, when you think about your home life sometimes and how you are mistreated, when you think about anything in your life where you are suffering because you are righteous, they can't take your clean conscience away from you and they can't take the glorification away from you which is coming to you no more than 90 or 100 years for the youngest of you. They can't take that away. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy when you are persecuted and insulted and rejected because great is your reward in heaven. And it's not only when you're persecuted, by the way, for your faith but all of the sufferings that you go through now. We have many who are, are suffering, aging and, and downcast and facing loneliness and the breakdown of their bodies. We have many young ones who are struggling with various ills. Some of you are getting bad breaks in life all the time. But your clean conscience is not taken away from you. Neither is the glorification which is coming. It is all yours by grace in Christ. And you can have joy. They also responded. You see in verse 41, they rejoiced because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. You know what? The next time that you are alienated somewhere for doing what is right and for standing by what is good, the next time you become frustrated at something outside of you, the injustice, the ungodliness, or somebody directly is persecuting you or making you feel alienated, or you do the right thing and there are consequences in your life when all these other people are doing what's wrong and they get off just fine, anytime you see that, you remember that it is a privilege to suffer after the pattern of your Savior who was perfect and holy in every way and yet had to go to the cross for you. It is just not acceptable 
for Christians to be whiny and complaining all the time about how bad everything goes. It is our privilege to suffer disgrace for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. We are being identified with His sufferings so that we will be identified with the glories that He now experiences. Christians sometimes get defined. Their whole mentality, their whole outlook on life is defined by their circumstances and the things that happen to them or what other people do to them. And we say to that, that is our privilege to suffer as Christians as opposed to be left suffering, sinful and miserable out in the world without any hope of a future, without any grace having been shown to us at all except for the common grace, the sun shining on us. how the apostles saw it even when they were being whipped and beaten and verse 42 day by day in the temple courts from house to house they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ it, these beatings did encourage their boldness they responded to this persecu- persecution with boldness they kept on teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ And listen, we're going to be bold about the Word of God and the truth of the one only true God. We're going to be true to the law and the gospel no matter how much we're despised and mocked. By the way, this is one of the stories that, again, the modern critics look at and say, your faith is ridiculous. What do you mean an angel showed up in a prison and knocked these guards unconscious, apparently, and then brought these prisoners out and locked back up the doors and then woke up the guards so that they didn't realize they were gone in the next day? You people are crazy. You believe this nonsense. And the cultural position by uh, today, by default, and we see this in the lives of some of our children, they're just taught to be so skeptical because none of this can obviously be true at all. And the default position of our Western culture today is to reject all of, of God's Word as the ultimate authority, and you question everything. You stand in judgment over the Word of God, even though answers are given when objections are lodged against the faith that they cannot answer. People sit up all high and mighty and they look at you for being foolish and worshiping this unseen God based on what they call just another form of of fables that you can find parallels to in all the false religions and all their ancient religious books. And we're going to hear that and we're going to increasingly hear that and we're going to be called that we're uh, hate speech when we're proclaiming the law of God and all the rest of it. And you know what? We're going to, with boldness, continue to preach and teach the truth. Come what may. And by God's grace and the power of His Spirit, more are going to be added to our number, and more are going to go forward, not in putting a chip on their shoulder against everybody else, but going forward in thankful obedience and praying for the lost. This is our privilege. It's a privilege to suffer disgrace in the way that Christ, after the pattern of our Christ, and to boldly keep going forward in the truth and to despise the shame like he did, and endure the cross. We may not be happy when that happens, but we're going to be joyful, and nobody's going to take our clean consciences away from us, and nobody is going to take the glorification away from us. Peter, after a good deal of maturity in his life addresses the same thing. And it means a lot to Peter because he's talking about what he endured. He says, It is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering 
because he is conscious of God. This is in 1 Peter 2. How is it to your credit if you receive a beating but for doing wrong, but for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. It is to this that you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. But when he suffered, he made no threats. And instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter wants you to be encouraged this morning uh, that he was beaten and it was his privilege to be beaten after the pattern of his Savior who received him home and will one day raise him, Peter, out of the grave and glorify him. And Peter wants to encourage you wherever you're facing any persecution or alienation for doing what is right, And he wants to encourage you no matter what you're suffering through. He wants you to know that this is just the pattern of following after Christ and the glories are coming. And you may have the clean conscience this morning and the hope of the life which is coming for you and which is the privilege and the possession only of the people of God who have humbled themselves and fled to Christ. Thanks be to God for His grace. To that all God's people said, Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice that Your church was advancing in spite of the fierce opposition. We rejoice that Your church advances today in spite of fierce opposition. Lord, we do not endure beatings, and yet we do face apathy and ignorance and skepticism and lies and hypocrisy. Lord, the church even fights herself as uh, we struggle along as believers uh, yet fighting our sins uh, against you and against each other. But uh, Lord, we thank you for your grace and that nothing can take away the work of Christ for us. We thank you that we have clear consciences and we thank you that the hope of the glorification is ours and that it's not a vain hope, but it's a true hope. It's not wishful thinking, but it's hope in what is certainly coming for us. Thank you for that promise. Thank you for your power at work and demonstrated in the lives of these uh, sickly ones in the story. Thank you that you will work that power in us, if not now, then at that last day when we are raised. And help us to humbly endure all of our sufferings, not to live with a sense of entitlement, but one of service and humility as is befitting for us, living after our Savior Jesus Christ who died for us. We thank you in his name. Amen.